Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, we'll begin reading there. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearing. That as we look at and attempt to understand your word and what the Apostle Paul was speaking to the churches in the Galatian region that he had planted, Father, that were being troubled by false teachers that were quickly deserting the gospel. We pray that as we hear this message, your spirit would be powerfully at work to examine our own hearts and minds and so to change us. Give us understanding. Turn on the lights in our dark minds so we see the truth, so we hear the truth, so we love it and are changed by it. We pray that the gospel of your Son, that you and your message would be greatly proclaimed and rejoiced in among us this morning. Praise in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. On January 14th, 1741, a soon-to-be very famous man, or maybe I should say infamous man, was born in Norwich, Connecticut. This man became tired over time. He was an apothecary who became tired over time of the parliamentary decisions of England, and he joined what became known as the Sons of Liberty in the 1760s. He fought for the colonies as a captain in the Revolutionary War. He actually led several successful military expeditions and became a friend and advisor of George Washington. George Washington named him eventually the military commander of the city of Philadelphia in 1778, and he became a general in the American army. He eventually assumed the command at West Point. From West Point, he began weakening the young American army, giving secrets to the British and planning an attack with the British on West Point. He was found out as a traitor to the American cause in September 1780 when his British co-conspirator was captured. He then joined the British forces and openly opposed the young United States. His name was Benedict Arnold. Look how famous his name is. I describe a traitor and you all know his name. He was such a traitor to the cause of America that his name has become synonymous with being a traitor. When someone betrays another person, we'll often call that person a Benedict Arnold. There's also a famous traitor in the Bible whose name is used as synonymous with being a traitor. What's his name? Judas Iscariot. Judas was an apostle of Jesus who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Thus, when someone becomes a traitor or a betrayer, we might also call them a Judas. Now, poor, poor Judases in the Bible who were good, there were those guys too. But the fact is that we all know what being a traitor looks like, don't we? We all know what it looks like. 
We all know that when you have allegiance to a particular kingdom or king or nation, you betray them when you sell out to another kingdom or king or nation. And Paul is writing to churches that he planted in the region of southern Galatia. He doesn't identify them as the church at Galatia, but the churches at Galatia, because there are several churches he planted in Acts 13 and 14 whom he's writing to right now. This is all being written before Galatians 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And he's written, writing to these churches in the Galatian region because he is stunned. He is stunned that they are becoming traitors of God and his gospel. Look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. See, Paul does not begin this letter with a thanksgiving. Lots of Paul's letters, if you go read his epistles, he often begins with a thanksgiving section. He does not begin this letter with a thanksgiving section. And he doesn't because of the seriousness of the situation. He's stunned. He's astonished. He is surprised. He is overcome with concern that they are deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ. He starts out saying that. I'm astonished. It's like a gentle rebuke. Say, is it a rebuke? Yes, but it's kind of a general rebuke. He's not saying, of course you idiots are betraying the gospel. That would be a strong rebuke. What fools I already knew you were. That's not his rebuke. His rebuke is, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the gospel. I've heard that you were traitors. How could you? I just planted your churches. How could you so quickly desert the gospel? How could you so quickly desert him who called you? I'm astonished. I'm stunned. Look at Galatians 3.1. We know he's stunned with them. because Look at Galatians 3.1 briefly. This is where he gets a little stronger. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now notice the question. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Listen, who's bewitched you, you fools? Who's bewitched you? Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit like asking, um, has the devil come in and confused you? Clearly, someone has taken over inside your head and your heart. John Stott, uh, a great commentator on scripture from England who has recently passed away, said this, The devil disturbs the church as much by error as by evil. When he entices Christian people into sin, or when he cannot, sorry, when he cannot entice Christian people into sin, he deceives them with false doctrine. So now the question is, why do I say that he's astonished that they are traitors? Why use the word traitor? He never uses the word traitor. He says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him. So why do I use the word traitor? Well, the reason is this word desertion or deserting in the Greek is speaking of the transfer of one's allegiance. It's actually a term that was used in the first century of soldiers in the army who are traitors or deserters. It was also used in the first century of those who changed political parties. They betrayed, they deserted, they were traitors. So Paul's saying, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. I'm stunned and surprised that you so quickly changed your allegiance to another God. You so quickly changed your allegiance to another gospel. You are traitors and betrayers. 
So what we have in Galatians really is a case of gospel desertion. The Galatian churches are deserting the gospel. And as we look at this gospel desertion, here's what I want you to see. I really want you to see four aspects of gospel desertion. What does it look like to be a traitor to the gospel? Four aspects of it. As we do, um, I, I want to tell you I, I was privileged enough to think of four S's even. I know I never alliterate, but here you go. Here's a, here's a Sunday where I'm going to. Four S's. You ready? The speed of gospel desertion, the substance of gospel desertion, the source of gospel desertion, and the seriousness of gospel desertion. That's what we're going to look at. So let's look at the first one, the speed of gospel desertion. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. You did it so soon. I just planted your churches. You just got saved. And you're already deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting. I actually stopped down this week when I was, when I was studying just to, just to slow down and catch hold of the fact that um, Paul says you're so quickly deserting. Part of the reason it slowed me down is, as I was finishing stuff up is because I was teaching the book of Revelation for my, for my men's deeper study on Friday morning. And one of the guys brought up the, the question of the Greek word for soon. What's the soon coming of Jesus? And that Greek word, when I went back to the text as I was working on the sermon later Friday morning, I was looking at the Greek text and noticed, oh, it's the same word. Quickly, soon. The quick coming of Jesus or the soon coming. He's coming quickly. He's coming soon. And I realized, oh, that slowed me down. And then I stopped and spent time just thinking about, why, why does Paul emphasize the fact that it's so quick? You're so quick that he's just stunned by it. And I actually think that this is a scene that echoes, that's that's echoing something that happened in Exodus 32. The Jews are brought out of Egypt. You guys are familiar with the story of the Exodus? They're in slavery in Egypt, and Moses leads them out of Egypt. And then when they're out, um, they come near the Mount, Mount Sinai, and then Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the law. And while he's up there, the, he's away for a while, not a long while, pretty really pretty much a short while, but the Jews are starting to wonder, in whom do we trust? Who do we worship? And so um, they build a golden calf to worship. And you remember the story. Um, Aaron tries to explain to Moses, essentially like, you know, uh, the gold went in and it just popped out a golden calf. We don't know how. But they, they're they're in the gospel. Moses hears about this from the Lord and here's what the Lord says in Exodus 32, 7 and 8. And I want you to hear the, what I think Paul's echoing here. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Your people have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And here's the point I think Paul's driving at in echoing this. You were just redeemed. Your church was just planted. And now some false teachers come along and you are quickly jumping ship to their message and their gods. Like Adam and like Israel of old, Desertion of God and desertion of God's message comes way too quickly. The Lord can be enormously gracious to us, and it doesn't take long before we desert him, does it? 
the human heart is so curved in on itself that even when we're saved and born again, we have the tendency to quickly forget and to turn our back on the Lord and turn back to sin and selfishness. And and I guess what I'm getting at is when you read this warning to the Galatian churches, I, I want you to stop and consider the fact that we should all be sobered by this. This ought to sober us all, that the Israelites are redeemed by the Lord and they quickly turn to another message and another God. That the Galatian churches are redeemed by the Lord and they quickly desert to another gospel and another God. These are churches planted by someone no less than the Apostle Paul. And they're still quickly deserting the gospel. Let's not become arrogant and think it won't happen to us. We could be a church filled with people who are captivated by the grace of God in Christ today and tomorrow be heeding the beckoning call of another gospel. It can come that quick. It's happened throughout church history. That's why church leaders are commanded by Paul to be on the alert. When in Acts chapter 20, when he talks to the Ephesian elders, he says, be on alert, be on your guard. I didn't stop watching out for you or teaching day and night with tears. Be on the alert, be on your guard. For when I depart, fierce wolves are going to come in. They're going to even arise from within your own number. And they're going to speak twisted things to draw disciples away after them. Be on your guard. The speed of gospel desertion can be a breakneck speed, and it can stun us all. People have said that pastors like me always seem on guard doctrinally. I've actually been told, you, see, you seem so ready to defend and critique and pounce on false doctrine. Yeah, that's right. I'm guilty. That's, it's true. You're exactly right. I'm on my guard. I'm on alert because I'm commanded to be. I'm commanded to be. To fail to be alert to bad doctrine is to be disobedient as a gospel minister. I know it isn't popular in our culture because we despise critique, but it's biblical. It's biblical to be on your guard. As a pastor in a church, as an elder, we're commanded to be on our guard, to be alert. And I'm telling you, Paul is saying to you as members of a local church, be on your guard, be alert. Gospel desertion can come quick. We're obsessed, though, with being positive, aren't we? We're obsessed with it. I mean, Simon Cowell on American Idol makes an entire career out of just being negative because we're so obsessed with being positive, we're all shocked by him. Oh, you know, somebody gets up and train wrecks a song, and and everybody's like, oh, you look nice. I really appreciated the effort. And Simon Cowell finally came and he finally goes, you're terrible. You should never sing again. And everybody's like, oh, turn it on. Watch that again. We're getting all voyeuristic. The guy made his whole career out of that because we're so focused on being positive. I even had a pastor, actually, a local pastor, I'm not going to tell you who, asked me this week. He said, so what are you preaching right now? And I said, well, we just started the book of Galatians. And his response was, that's awesome. It's such a gospel-centered book. Nope. His response is, well, you're going to preach that really quick, right? And I said, what? I don't know. Why? I don't really preach a lot of things really quick, but, but why do you ask? He said, well, you're preaching that fast because it's so negative, right? People don't want to hear all that negative stuff. 
Pastors to be soldiers on the alert, guardians of the flock. I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying pastors should be dour and unhappy jerks. That isn't the point. They should be happy warriors. Warriors because we know that in false doctrine, eternity is at stake, and we know that our hearts are quick to, tur- to run to it, and happy because we know the grace of God in Christ and the promise of his return. Whatever we are, we can't be naive enough to think positive about the human condition and believe that we can let our guard down because the speed of the gospel desertion can be very fast. If you think that your general posture ought to be that whatever's coming out of Christianity by way of books and movies and music, you ought to just let your guard down because, of course, it's all going to be good, then you're a fool. You're naive. You are not heeding the warning of Paul. Be on the alert. The human heart quickly turns away from the gospel. Second, the substance of gospel desertion. So if we've got to be, if gospel desertion happens quickly, what is it? What's the substance of gospel desertion? When you say you're deserting the gospel, you're betraying the gospel, what is Paul getting at? Look at verse 6 again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There really is no other good news. This is it. Notice they're deserting two things. Him who called and the gospel message he called them to. Do you hear that? Him who called and the gospel message he called them to. So let's look first at the gospel message he called them to. They were deserting what? The gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were deserting the belief that God showed favor to them, not because they deserved it, but because he is good. That he showed favor to them freely. That they didn't merit any of it. And that he did that in sending his son to live the life that they failed to live, to be perfect in every way, sinless, holy, undefiled, to be tempted in every way yet without sin, that he came to do that for them and that he went to the cross and paid their penalty for their sin, took the wrath of God due to them upon himself. And that he then rose on the third day, was buried and rose on the third day, conquering sin and death, was declared vindicated or holy before all people and all angels and demons. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where, from whence he sent his spirit where he rules and reigns forever. And he sent his spirit in us to give us life, to believe, to turn from our sins. And when we believe, the Holy Spirit unites us through faith to Christ so that we get the double benefit of Christ. We get forgiven for our sins and declared righteous in him. And we get, what? Not only the penalty removed, but the power of sin is broken in our lives so that we can live holy lives in Christ. They were abandoning that gospel. They were saying, faith alone is not enough. Grace alone is not enough. Christ alone is not enough. The false teachers were Judaizers. And their gospel is summarized in Acts 15, verse 1. Unless you were circumcised, here's their gospel, this is what they were teaching. Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And verse 1. For freedom, 
Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Look, here's the thing. These Judaizers did not deny that you needed faith in Jesus for salvation. They believe that. Yes, Jesus is the God-man. Yes, Jesus came and lived perfectly in our place. Yes, Jesus went to the cross and died for our sin. Yes, he rose from the dead on the third day. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever rules and reigns. He sent his spirit. You've got to believe in him. We agree with all that. They said, but it's not enough. You also have to keep the law. You've got to add circumcision. We're not denying you need to believe in Jesus for salvation. We're saying you need to add something to it. And and listen, the condition of the human heart is that, that we're quick to run to that message, aren't we? We've got to add something, don't we? Isn't there something I do to get favor with God? Isn't there some way I contribute to my justification before God? And the Judaizers are saying, yeah, Jesus does most of it, but you got to do a little bit to finish it off. It's a little bit like John Stott says. It's a little bit like they said, you know, let Moses finish what Christ began. They were teaching essentially that Christ is not sufficient. His righteous life and sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is not enough. Trusting in Jesus and being united by the Spirit to him is not enough. That's a good start, but you must finish the job by your obedience to the law. Christ's work is not enough until you add your work. And the fact is that works of the law were never, I want you to hear this, works of the law were never intended to save you. You cannot, no one ever has been, nor can anyone ever be justified, declared righteous and forgiven of their sins by law keeping. Look at Galatians 2.16. Paul just says it straight out. Look there, 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified, declared righteous, forgiven of their sins by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You might say, well, in fairness, the Judaizers are not teaching you're saved just by works of the law. They're not. The Judaizers are saying you're saved by believing in Jesus plus works of the law. It's faith in Christ plus obedience that saves you. But Paul deals with this also. Paul is saying that by adding works of the law, hear this, by adding works of the law, to the work of Christ, received by grace alone through faith alone, the Judaizers are making grace useless. You hear that? Look at Galatians 5 again in verse 2. Notice what he says. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And by circumcision, he's not meaning if when you have children, you have your son circumcised. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a religious duty that was necessary to be considered clean among the Jews and acceptable to God. He's saying, if you try to work out your salvation in the sense that you're working for it, 
Not work out your salvation in the sense that now that you know you've been saved, you're working because of it. Do you understand the distinction? If you try to work for your salvation, you make Christ of no advantage. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Very graphic language, by the way. Severing, being connected to circumcision there. You're severed from him. You try to justify yourself by works of the law. William Perkins, who was a uh, Puritan pastor scholar in the 17th century, wrote a commentary on Galatians, and he made this comment. The Galatians joined the works of the law with Christ and his grace in the cause of their justification and salvation. They joined the works of the law with Christ and his grace. Here it must be observed that they make a union of grace and works in the cause of justification. If you do that, you are separated from the grace of God. Grace, he goes on to say, grace admits no partner or fellow. Grace must be freely given every way or it is in no way grace. Be clear, any gospel that says faith in Christ is good but you need to add something is a false gospel. That's why the Protestants left Rome. We didn't leave Rome because we didn't like their music. It wasn't because of small issues. It was because the Judaizing Galatian heresy was growing. That it was faith in Christ plus something. These were Catholic priests who left over this. Because they saw this perversion in the gospel that was happening. It wasn't the first time it happened in Rome. It happened, by the way, throughout history, and it's happening here to the Galatian churches. This is a common event. It happens in evangelical churches. It's easy to pick on Rome, but it's happening in evangelical churches all the time. All the time. We, I'm sure people in this room, have been guilty of this same error. The gospel of Jesus Christ taught by the apostles is clear. You are forgiven for your sins and declared righteous by grace alone, received through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone. You add nothing. The only thing you bring to the table is your sin. That's it. What do I bring to my salvation? Sin. That's it. Your faith itself is not even what God is rewarding. God isn't looking down going, man, your faith is so virtuous and strong. If I was waiting for that, I'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? God is rewarding Jesus, whom you receive by faith. Further, you don't start the Christian life with Jesus. I want you to hear this. You don't start it with Jesus and then, end, and then finish it yourself. He's the beginning and end of your salvation. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. Yes, good works come along, but they're just the fruit and evidence of a born-again Christian with a true and lively faith. That's what they are. Good works are a fruit and evidence. Those works add nothing to your salvation. They merely evidence that you're saved. So the Galatians were deserting the gospel of grace, and in doing so, Paul says they were deserting the God of grace. Notice they not only were deserting the gospel of grace, but the God of grace. If you desert the gospel, look what he says. I am astonished that you are so what? Quickly deserting him, deserting him who called you. If you desert the gospel, you desert the gracious Father who called you in Christ by the Spirit. He, he expressly, specifically accuses them of deserting him. 
who called them in grace. See, here's the thing. The God of grace and the gospel of grace cannot be separated. If you have a different gospel, you have a different God. Because you're positing something about God that is untrue. If you say that you can somehow add to your salvation in a way, through your works, in a way that pleases God, then you're positing a less than gracious God. You cannot separate the God, the giver of the gospel, from the gospel or the gospel from the God who gives it. They're they're inseparably tied together. If you abandon one, you abandon both. In other words, Christian faith and Christian life belong together and cannot be separated. Christian doctrine and Christian experience are married, and no man can separate them. To turn from the gospel of grace is to turn from the God of grace. It is impossible to forsake the gospel without also forsaking him who called you in the grace of Christ. Third, the source of gospel desertion. Let's look at the source of it. So if that's the substance of it, and if it comes quick or speedily, then what is the source of this gospel desertion? Look with me, if you will, at the end of verse 7, or verse 7, look there. Not that there is another gospel, there is no other good news, but there are some. There are some who trouble you. They're troublemakers. Paul's calling them troublemakers in the church. They've come to trouble you and, and want, they desire to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man? Clearly not, right? Or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now I want to press into the fact that there is, there's one explicit source of gospel desertion here. One explicit source of gospel desertion, but there's also an, Im- an implicit source. There's an explicit source and an implicit source of gospel desertion here. So let's look at the explicit source. He says, first, there are some who are troublemakers. They're troubling you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ, he says in verse 7. These are troublemakers who want to confuse you and distort the gospel. They may seem sincere, They may seem nice. They may be very bright. But they're distorting the gospel. They're giving a confused message. They may even seem holy and scholarly. Even if I, Paul says, as an apostle, or an angel from heaven. But if they teach another gospel, then the gospel gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, they are false teachers. Period. If they teach a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ delivered by the apostles and the prophets in the Old and New Testaments, then they are false teachers and troublemakers who are trying to confuse the church. Paul even warns himself In other words, he's saying, the gospel message is bigger than me, the apostle delivering it to you. If I betray the true gospel, let me be accursed. The source of false gospels, I want you to hear this, is always false teachers. These teachers are wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like the real deal. None of them show up at church with a sign saying, I'm a false teacher here to lead you to hell. None of them. They look like the real deal. They're emissaries of Satan, Paul tells us, who come as angels of light. 
they mimic gospel preachers in every way they can. And they'll even tell you, yep, I believe in the Trinity. I believe Jesus is the God-man. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that you need to believe in him to be saved. And you need this. But that's not enough. They attempt to counterfeit God and the gospel in some way, but their message is anathema. It's to be accursed. They may even seem really sincere and tell you great God stories. You know, people are into God stories. I don't know what that means, but that's the thing now. They might tell you great God stories, but then they follow those stories with Judaizing statements like, your obedience activates God's grace. And you must join Paul in declaring that teaching of God's grace plus something I do as anathema. Your good works and obedience are always and only an effect of God's justifying and sanctifying grace and never a cause of God's grace in Christ. Your good works are always an effect, never a cause. You guys hear that? But the source of gospel assertion is also found somewhere else. Look, look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's what I'm going to say about this. There's the explicit source, false teachers who come to you, wolves in sheep's clothing. There's an implicit source. With the implicit sources here, weak pastors who desire the praise of men. That's implied here. Paul's saying, listen, the reason I'm telling you the truth is because I don't desire the the applause of men first. If I did, I would be quiet about the Judaizing error. And so the implicit source we get from that is this. When pastors are quiet, not on the alert, wanting to please the, the masses, they don't speak up when gospel error comes. When pastors want the praise of men, they can easily compromise on the gospel. And if pastors fail to be men who remain on their guard, eschewing the praise of men, knowing that the primary damage that can come to the church is not from sin outside, but from false doctrine inside, the church will quickly desert the gospel if pastors aren't that way. The church will be carried away to all manner of distraction as she subtly begins to believe that pleasing men is her supreme duty. And beware, young future ministers, this can happen to anyone. If you look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11... If you are a young man who's raising up as a missionary pastor, I want you to especially hear this. This can happen to anyone. Galatians 2, verse 11, but when Cephas, that's Peter. That's Peter's Aramaic name. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So he was concerned about his reputation. And he would not stand up to the Judaizers. He went along with them so they'd like him. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, we'll unwrap this passage more later, but here's the key point you need to get a hold of. Peter and Barnabas are so afraid of what men around them will think that they do not stand up 
against the false gospel. They go along with it. And Paul comes and rebukes Peter to his face in front of crowds of people. Clearly, he's not worried about what people think about him. The temptation is to receive the praise of men. And that temptation can be a powerful intoxicant. If you stand for the gospel against those who pervert the gospel, you won't lose the relationship, uh, just lose the relationship with the false teacher. You may also lose your relationship with other Christian friends. Why? Because when you stand for the gospel, others may call you ungracious. That's the irony. You're standing up against works and they're calling you ungracious. Works aren't going to save you. You're ungracious. No, I'm precisely being gracious. I mean, how could, how could Paul rebuke Peter to his face in front of others? Doesn't Paul know who Peter is? Doesn't Paul know how close Peter was to Jesus? Doesn't Paul know that Peter was the missionary pastor who preached with power at Pentecost? Boy, that was like a uh, little... Yeah, try that one real fast. Anyway, doesn't he know that Peter was this guy? That he was jailed for his faith? That he was beaten for his faith? That he had sacrificed everything for the faith? Why does Paul have to be so dogmatic? How come Paul can't be more kind? Why would Paul show disrespect to a man who had been such a powerful missionary pastor, who had done miracles, who had led thousands to Christ, who was beaten and imprisoned for the faith? You know why he could? Because Peter needed to be rebuked for his man-pleasing, and he needed to turn back to the gospel of grace. And of course, by the grace of God, Peter did repent. We need more pastors like Paul who are gracious enough to point out a false gospel, who are bold enough to point out a false gospel, who will relentlessly and fearlessly preach and defend the gospel of grace from our greatest threat, which is not the sinners out there, but the false teachers in here. John Stott has said this um, just in his great commentary on Galatians. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers, now as then, are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. It is they who trouble the church. Conversely, the only way to be a good churchman is to be a good gospel man. The best way to serve the church is to believe and preach the gospel. Fourth, the seriousness of gospel desertion. So we've talked about the substance and the source and the speed. What is the seriousness of gospel desertion? Look at verse 8 again. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be, notice this word, anathema, accursed. That word means damned to hell. Listen, even if we, Paul's a what? An apostle. Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be condemned to hell. Pretty strong words, isn't it? And in case you thought Paul was just rashly flying off the handle and not being very thoughtful, he decides to make sure you know he means it by repeating himself. As we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary, anyone, anyone, if anyone is preaching, if I, your pastor, am preaching to you a gospel 
contrary to the one you received. If anyone is preaching, if an angel named Moroni, and by the way, if an angel who appears to you has moron in his name, run. But if an angel named Moroni comes to you and says, I have a different gospel, flee. Let him be condemned. Let him be condemned. If I come to you with a different gospel, flee. Let him be accursed. Paul says, sees gospel desertion as serious. He sees it as deadly serious, as eternally serious. Paul's focused here on false shepherds and not those being led astray by them. I want you to get the whole of this. He's focused on false shepherds, not on those being led astray by them. Just like Jesus was. Who does Jesus condemn? The religious leaders who are falsely teaching, not the sheep who are helpless. What? being led astray without a shepherd to care for them. Those people he has compassion on and preaches the truth to. But the false teachers he comes after, Paul's doing the same thing. He's deadly serious. If you preach a different gospel, no matter who you are, let you be accursed, anathema, them to hell. Now, we're in a culture that sees us all as a bit extreme, aren't we? It's definitely not nice. Your mom told you to be not nice all your life? Stop being nice. This is, this is not being nice. If you tell your kids to be nice, stop it. Your kids don't need to be nice. They need to be kind. They need to be loving. They need to be gracious, but they don't need to be nice. Being nice is basically telling people what they want to hear so they like you. Being kind is being telling them what they need to hear for their sake. We have a culture full of nice people, and it's why we're crumbling. And Paul is not nice. We're so focused on being polite and nice and well-liked that we're going to glad hand and smile at some folks right into the fire of hell. And Paul's indignant about this kind of false gospel coming from so-called teachers. And why is he indignant? Because a false gospel damns people, and not only does it damn people, it diminishes God's glory. Diminishes the glory of God. Paul told us in Romans that he so wants the salvation of others that he would himself be damned if it meant salvation for them. Paul's indignant because God's glory and man's salvation are at stake. That's what's at stake. God's glory, man's salvation. That's what's at stake in the gospel. How can you not be deadly serious about that? How can you smile and glad hand your friends as they deny that and go to hell? You ought to care enough about them that you are on your face praying that God would save them, that you're willing to speak up even if it means they don't like you because you care more about their eternal destiny and the glory of your God than you do how people think about you. We have got to get a hold of this church. Nothing less than man's eternal salvation and God's glory, nothing less than that is on the line. This isn't the minor stuff. This is the biggest stuff there is. And Paul's indignant. Paul does everything he does for the glory of God and the salvation of others. He is no cool theologian who simply likes to debate doctrine. He believes doctrine has eternal consequences. He believes he's in a battle for the souls of men and the glory of God, and he cannot be apathetic. 
He can't sit back and save the feelings of others or his own reputation if it means damnation for others and diminishing of God's glory. And catch this. I want you to hear this. He's defending believers from who? Bad church leaders. Bad church leaders. Who he's defending them from? You may need to save your friends from bad churches where a false gospel is being preached. Ever thought about that? Paul's doing that right here in churches he planted. We um, started Radius with the hope of training young people to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's why we started it. What we did not expect was that in many cases, Radius was having to save young people from missions leaders who were preaching a false gospel. We didn't expect to do that. Frankly, we don't even desire to participate in that. But we had to do it a lot more than we expected. Some missions leaders are literally teaching a gospel of good advice, and that's damning. They have a methodology that teaches people a gospel of obey, obey, obey until you finally are under the full lordship of Christ, and then you're saved. That's a, that's a gospel of Moses, not of Jesus. In fact, it's not even as good as Moses' gospel, because at least Moses knew he wasn't saved by any of that law-keeping. He knew he was looking forward to the Christ. But these guys are doing it, and we didn't know how much effort we would have to put out so that we don't participate in sending young people who are lost and dying to a lost and dying world with a message of good advice followed by great condemnation. That wasn't our goal. We want our missionaries to go into the world and with clarity to proclaim a gospel of good news of great joy. Now you might be thinking, good thing I'm not a pastor or missionary because none of this is really directed at me. But I I want you to hear the sovereign grace. Paul's not only addressing the leaders of Galatia, he's astonished that the churches of Galatia have so quickly deserted the gospel. He's coming after them for the betrayal of the gospel has not only come at the hands of the leaders, it's come at the hands of the church. We are no better people than the Galatians. You guys hear that? We are no better people than the Galatians. Don't think, well, that's nice, it happened to them, but it won't happen to us. Yes, it will. We have to be on our guard. We're no less susceptible to slowly trailing off into a false gospel or to quickly running off into a false gospel. And being a traitor, I want you to hear this, being a traitor does not always happen all at once. The changes can come stunningly fast, but being a traitor, the changes can come really slowly. Let me take you back to the story of Benedict Arnold I started with. He became a traitor after his first wife died, but not right away. His first wife died while he was a general, but he did not become a traitor right away. What happened is um, he had some kids. He eventually met another woman and got married to her. She was a British loyalist. And she introduced him to British leaders who eventually assisted him in becoming a traitor. Now, how does that happen with the gospel? It happens when the church marries the spirit of the age and slowly convinces herself she wants to be loved by that world. The world does not care for doctrines like the gospel. The world does like ethics. Their lives are a mess and they'd help. They want to clean up their act, save their marriage, overcome their addiction, restrain their rebellious kids. People out there actually find ethics to be relevant to their daily lives. 
So we should, what we should do, these preachers think, is we should start dressing the church up as one who can provide all that. Look, look here, the church is family friendly. We have clean entertainment. We can encourage your kids to have good, clean fun. We have services to fix your marriage. We do nice things for the local community. We have programs to help you with addiction. Our pastor's preaching a series of principles for better living. We're relevant. We care about what you care about day to day. Is your life a mess? We can clean it up. All ethics. All things you do. We don't waste your time on boring doctrine. Who wants to hear that? I do. You should want to. Because doctrine is the gospel. Doctrine is what someone else did for you, not what you do for yourself. We don't waste our time on doctrine, though. We provide you with a great worship experience and great programs. The gospel's doctrine, folks. Ethics tells you how to live. Doctrine tells you what is true. Ethics tell you what to do. The gospel doctrine announces to you what has been done for you. Yes, we believe in ethics, but they are always the result of our doctrine. We must remain a church which is relentlessly committed to preaching the doctrine of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that what Paul says he's about? And ethics flow out of that. And if we ever have men who walk into our pulpit uncommitted to the centrality of Christ and his gospel being proclaimed in his sermons, then you as the congregation ought to respond with, in the same way that Charles Spurgeon responded when he heard preachers who didn't preach Christ. He said this, A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread sorry, without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Hear that? That's what you ought to do. If I come up here and preach ethics to you and don't turn you to the doctrine of Jesus Christ as your salvation, then you ought to come and tell me to go home and never preach again until I have something worth preaching. Because we will quickly or slowly, step by step, go off to a false gospel if we are not on the alert. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a church that is serious mind, seriously minded about your gospel of grace, about you who are the God who showed that great grace to us that we did not deserve. We pray, Father, that you would be powerfully at work in us by your Spirit to continually remind us of our need for Jesus, of the unmerited favor that you've shown to us in him, and that we would have great joy knowing that he alone is our salvation. We pray, Father, for those who do not know your Son, who do not look to Jesus in faith, who are not saved. We pray that you would work powerfully in them so that they would be convicted of their sin and know that your Son is their only hope and they would turn to him in faith and so be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.